Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One on One podcast. Today's episode is dedicated in memory of Sarah Litton, Zichrona Levracha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, the founding director of atidandwebyeshiva.org and a director of research at the Agnon House and the editor of the Journal of Tradition. Jeff, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Yosefa. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. We've had, it's sort of been a great um, magical mystery ride these past uh, number of weeks, meeting all different figures uh, throughout Jewish history. And today we are going to be focusing on Shai Agnon. Uh, who, you know, his writing, which you'll describe much better than I can, is sort of this literary, midrashic, uh, you feel like you're in rabbinic land, but it also takes you to to all other places and paradises. And it's a great way, I think, to get to know the Parsha in a creative way. Right, right. I mean, I think we should be careful to stipulate that in looking to Agnon for insights to the parasha, we're not looking to the Ramban and we're not looking to uh, Nacham Leibovitz or to many of the other figures that your guests have spoken about. Uh, we're talking about a writer of modern Hebrew fiction, uh, although perhaps the greatest writer of modern Hebrew fiction, the only such person to receive a Nobel Prize for his work. But because Agnon's writing is so entrenched in the world of principally rabbinic literature. And in that way, I think you're correct in saying that his writing is a kind of pseudo-midrash uh, on our classic sources. His works of modern literature can be read intertextually to gain insights to all different types of things, including the parashiot of the Mishkan that we'll be talking about today. Right. And that sort of takes us right into the the beginning. We're here speaking about Parshat Vayakel, and we are post the sin of the golden calf. And we're in what we would sort of call the second act of the building of the Mishkan. And we meet uh, at the beginning of the parasha, uh, or actually it's in the, the third aliyah. We meet the figure of Bitzel ben Uri ben Chur Lemate Yehuda. Uh, we meet the Judean artistic master who was going to put the Mishkan into its form. Uh, of course, we shouldn't be surprised that the artist of the Mishkan will be from the, the leading tribe of Israel. Uh, and the Psukim describe him as having a Ruach Elokim Bechokhmah, Ubetvunah, Uvadat, Ubacholim Elacha. That he has this uh, divine spirit to him and he has a wisdom and an insight. Uh, and, and the commentators sort of struggle with how to understand the difference between all those different phrases. But it speaks to some sort of creative process that is that goes far beyond our human understanding of it, that there's, that there's a, a divinity and there's a spirituality that goes into this creative process that goes far beyond using physical tools to create a physical structure. Um, before we get into the story that you've brought today of Mazel Dagim, uh, I just wanted to ask you how you started engaging with Agnon. Uh, I don't know all of your formal training from when you were younger, but I can only imagine that it initially did not include Shai Agnon. As it does not for most uh, most uh, people that we encounter, 
Um, my long relationship with Agnon uh, would probably fill the whole episode. So the short answer is that uh, in high school, growing up in a in a somewhat uh, assimilated family in the United States, when I became interested in things Jewish and began a process of of uh, return to uh, to observance and to engage Jewish life, uh, actually, my grandmother, who herself was not uh, observant but was very Jewishly literate, uh, bought for me a copy of. Uh, Agnon, then was called 21 Stories. It was a collection, a rather odd mix of short stories that were available in translation. Um, was, you know, one of the few things available by Agnon in translation uh, back then. Now there's so much more. Um, and I don't, I actually don't even know if she herself had read it or if she had just gone into the bookstore looking for a Jewish book for her, for her Jewishly engaged uh, grandson. Um, but she was the kind of woman who, if a Hebrew author sitting in Jerusalem won the Nobel Prize, she would have taken she would have taken note. Um, and I read the book in high school. I was a pretty bookish kid, and uh, <laughs> and um, and I was enchanted. I, obviously, then I could not have read Agnon in Hebrew. And if I could have all of his many many intertextual references and allusions to the rabbinic canon, would have been completely lost on me. But I understood he was saying something really interesting about the modern Jewish condition and the tensions of modern Jewish life and the transitions that Judaism had undergone to get to where we were in the in the 20th century. And it resonated with some of the things that I was undergoing, some of the processes that I was undergoing. Um, I had already read um, some Franz Kafka by then, and that's a long, separate conversation um, many people had pointed out certain similarities in certain particular stories that are actually overrepresented in that volume. And uh, I continued to read what was available to me in English. And when I came in Aliyah uh, at the age of uh, 25, um, I endeavored to read him in, in Hebrew. And I uh, bought myself a copy of, uh, of a book in Hebrew and I was unable to do it. Uh, some of our listeners may be shocked to discover that a person living in an Anglo-Saxon living in Israel would be unable to read Agnon in the original, but it was true at one point. Things have changed. And um, uh, But over time, I, uh, I, had, I kept up with it, and uh, a rather curious uh, experiment uh, took place at some point years later where I tried to read all of Agnon's writings cover to cover one of these kinds of immersion experiences. Um, I had already read quite a bit by that point, and I was you know, filling in, not exactly like Daf Yomi, you understand, but uh, the idea that you could really you know, read the entire collected writings of a great author, in Agnon's case, there are 23 volumes in Hebrew. And you know, when you immerse yourself into something, you learn a lot about it, but then the whole thing becomes a lens to look back at yourself. But then the short answer to your question is that I had the opportunity to, to start teaching Agnon's writing at the Agnon House here in Jerusalem, which is a wonderful institution that I've been involved with for many years now. You teach there in English? I, well, I teach there in English. I teach there in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, they were looking for someone to teach uh, in English, mm-hmm. um, which is how I got involved. And I was invited to give, I think, a three-part series, and I've been there ever since. Uh, and I've been involved with lots of different uh, initiatives there, projects and research and writing and uh, 
of course, the only way to really become expert in anything is to is to teach it, um, and that's mm-hmm. the short answer of how I became involved with the uh, with the world of Agnon. I'm very interested in this idea of feeling like one is an expert on something. I I feel like it's a feeling that I'm speaking. I feel like it's a feeling that eludes me in general. And so it's interesting because you have an author and you have a corpus that you know that you can encompass because it's all in front of you, right? As opposed to other fields, if I take, you know, uh, Bible academia, it's, it, there's, there's an end so, do you know what I'm saying? It's constantly, it's hundreds of years, it's constantly being created. It's not something that you can really encompass in that kind of way. So everyone right. sort of picks their little mountain right, yes, and then they, they stay They there. write their doctorate on the Mapik Hay in the second <laughs> chapter of Amos. Exactly, so, something like that. So I just, I'm curious... When is a moment that you get to that you feel like you've mastered something? What when when did that happen? Or that when people say that you're a you know a world renowned researcher that you don't feel embarrassed to take that well, title? We have a funny story <laughs> that at some point I was getting into this and I was gaining a reputation, you know. I met it. you then, by the way. I, I met you that in time, that yeah, experience remember, when you were trying to and, read it all. Uh, one day the phone rings and my wife answers the phone and on the other line somebody says is this the home of Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, the Agnon scholar? And my wife was like, I guess so. <laughs> and it was uh, someone calling me. It was the first time somebody was uh, calling to invite me as scholar in residence to talk about Agnon. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had a long career in teaching, you know, the, the regular subjects yeah, in uh, Judaism and Torah uh, beforehand. Um, and this was the first time that somebody had turned to me in this regard. So it became something of a joke in the house, the Agnon scholar. <laughs> um, but in yeah. terms of expertise, in other words, part of it is you're right. There are certain things that, there are certain things that no, no honest or, or sane person with integrity today would say, I'm going to become an expert on this. I mean, uh, we, we're all aware that there are, you know, singular geniuses in the world who really, you know, do have that kind of, you know, the pin test into the, into the Gemara and know every line backward and forward. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be hard to set out to do that consciously, certainly not in, in middle age. Um, But something like Agnon is vast. It's broad. It's deep. There's value in trying to gain expertise in it, but, it is bounded enough that a person can read all of Agnon's writings. And you can also, with some guidance, read all of the secondary literature that's essential. You can't do that, let's say, in the Bible. No, you can't. You can't do that in the Rishonim if you're trying to master uh, the Gemara. You can't do it with Shakespeare, right? There are certain topics in, in history or in philosophy or in literature that it just you can't master everything. I understand that uh, the history of the Civil War, there has been more than one book a day published on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War wow. since the Civil War. You can't possibly read it all. Now, not all of it is, of course, necessary to read or, yeah. or worth reading, but to kind of get a map of what's out there. It's just not possible. Agnon, it's, it's really possible to... To, uh, to encompass to, all that secondary encompass, literature. I mean, you can't yeah. do it, you can't do it, you know, overnight and still get a good night's sleep that evening. But, yeah. uh, 
But it's possible if you, you know, make a kind of concerted effort over the course of a, a number of years to do it, mm-hmm. that it can be done. But ultimately, that sense of expertise is, you know, when you understand that you, lahavdil, the way the Rambam describes, you know, halomeid davar mitoch davar, that that's what real, uh, that's what real gemara is, um, that's what real Talmud is. Um, so here, the real limud is that ability to kind of make the connections and to understand that you really have. Uh, holding on mm-hmm. the entire map of uh, of this of this particular canon and can be creative with it. Um, that's like the sense of of expertise. Okay, that's fascinating. I think maybe with that we'll we'll pivot to the creative process mm-hmm. uh, and the way that it comes through in this story that you brought us today. Right. So let's, so let's jump very in. briefly, this is a story called in Hebrew in Hebrew Mazal Dagim. In English, it's translated as Pisces. It's available in Hebrew in Agnon's uh, monumental work Ir Umloa, which is a collection of three hundred years worth of stories about his hometown Butchach. Agnon grew up in a town in Galicia, what today is Western Ukraine, uh, but then was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or the easternmost reaches of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was a small town. It wasn't a shtetl. It wasn't a little village, but it wasn't uh, Lviv, or certainly not Warsaw. Um, there were about 12,000 people who lived there when Agnon was born at the end of the 19th century, about 60% of whom were Jewish. But our story takes place years earlier. It's actually set on one particular day in Chodesh Adar, of 1864, so exactly 158 years ago. Mm-hmm. And although completely a work of fiction, it's based on an actual halachic case. Agnon was an absolute baki in, well, frankly, in, in all of Kolatorakula, but uh, particularly anything related to Galicia, uh, anything related to his hometown. And for a small town, Buchach uh, could boast uh, some very many significant rabbonim who served in the town. In the 1860s, there was a rabbi named Avraham Tuumim. He wrote a variety of important halachic works, including a set of shelot tshuvot called Chesed Avraham. In the Chesed Avraham, there's a she'ela about the non-Jewish fishermen. Buchach sits on either bank of a small river, the Stripa River, the fishermen had all raised the, there was a kind of... Uh, inflation? Well, in inflation, there was a kind of um, racket, uh, a cartel of the fishermen. They raised exorbitantly the price of fish because they know Jews like to eat and Jews like to eat fish. And the Jews even have an idea that it's important to eat fish on their Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So if we raise the price, they'll... They'll buy it anyways. They'll buy it anyway. They'll be stuck. So there was an attempt to have the rabbi make a cherem, make a ban on eating fish in order to force the cost down. And the rabbi, Avram Tumim, writes a tshuva uh, about this issue, and he explains why halachically, according to the letter of the law, he cannot forbid the wealthy or those who can afford it from buying fish. He can't make such a ban. But, he says, and here it's something really important, which an idea that Agnon plays with in a variety of things. He makes a point of saying, not everything is asur and mutar, forbidden and permitted. There is the realm of right and wrong. And it's wrong to, even though technically you're permitted to do it, it's wrong to 
buy uh, the fish at the exorbitant price and to allow the fishermen to keep the, the price up because we should all be concerned for the poorest amongst us. We should all, and he, he was apparently a wealthy man. He took no salary as the town rabbi. He himself uh, didn't buy fish during this period. But Hagnon reads the tshuva and he imagines a fictitious case of what's happening in the town in Adar of 1860. Four. And he writes this story, Mazal Dagim. Now, of course, Mazal Dagim is the, is the sign of the, the zodiac of the Pisces. The story is taking place in the month of Adar. The story itself has a distinctly um, Purim-like, carnivalesque, carnivalesque mm-hmm. grotesque type of thing. It's a story that's full of Venahafahu, the turnaround, the turnaround plot. It has elements that we associate with Purim, although not necessarily with Megillah Esther, elements of, of, as you said, the grotesque, the carnival, the confused identities of who's who, and we think one character is one person, and it turns out that the two characters have kind of had this kind of transference mm-hmm. uh, from from one to the other. And therefore, all of these things come together quite nicely in Adar, in a story about Pisces, about the Zodiac of Adar. And perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, the weeks that we read these parashiot of the Mishkan, the Mishkan always fall out, at least partially, within, within Adar. The story features this extremely corpulent fellow named... Fischl Carp, whose name itself is already a parody. The whole thing is a satire. You yeah. understand? This is high comedy. Yeah. Fischl Carp, his name means, you know, kind of like fishy fish, yes. right? Two different types of fish. And he, despite the, the kind of social taboo against eating fish, can't help himself. Fischl Carp is a man who is driven entirely by his stomach. He's described, you know, almost as a kind of Falstaff character. He has conversations with his belly trying to remind it that don't worry, belly, I will, I will take care of you. And on his way to shul every morning, on his way to shul every morning, he, uh, he takes his talus bag, which is this very large, uh, almost like a shopping cart-sized talus bag. We learn later how he came to possess such a thing. And he walks through the shuk, through the marketplace from his home to the synagogue doing this kind of shopping, picking up all the tasty treats and all types of things that he'll want to be eating later that day. And he stuffs it rather grotesquely into his... I kept thinking about the smell. Into his talus bag. Yeah. So that by the time he actually does get to shul, davening is over. And in almost every occasion, he ends up davening on his own. One day, he's walking through the marketplace and he sees the most magnificent, the largest fish he has ever seen. Now, this fish is a sentient fish. We, the reader, are privy to his thoughts. And this fish is not only a sentient fish, he's actually a rather Jewish fish. He has all types of ideas about aliyat nishama, the elevation of the soul and reincarnation and righteous suffering and evil prospering and all types of theological ideas that Agnon is able to communicate to us through the thoughts of this, of this fish. He buys this gigantic fish, but because it is a bit taboo, he hides it into this extra large sized talus bag where the fish will get tangled up in, talk about grotesque, yeah. in the man's mm-hmm. fillin. Until by the end of the story, the fish 
is wearing the tefillin shel rosh of fischl carp. In the shul, there's only one person, Betzalel Moshe. Now, to call a character who is an artist, Betzalel Moshe, only asks to interpret the story through the prism of the construction of the Mishkan, the two great collaborators in this project of creating physical space that houses the divine, physical space that houses the infinite. Betzalel Moshe, Betzalel, of course, the artist of whom you spoke uh, minutes ago, and Moshe, the, well, if Betzalel is kind of the contractor of the building project, Moshe is the, uh, the architect, yeah. you know, some sort. Together they, they do this great thing. Betzalel Moshe is an artist, but he's a, a starving, struggling artist. He's not an artist, he's not a great uh, artist uh, doing great projects. He's an orphan who he's, has no food. He's a poor orphan with no food, he's starving. Uh, the great irony in the story is that uh, despite appetite driving the plot, nobody actually gets to eat much during the story. Um, everybody goes goes hungry. Everybody's hungry in the story. And, uh, um, you know, he's, he's occupied with kind of menial artistic tasks, uh, sketching out the design of a, of a gravestone that the stone cutter will then will then carve, uh, copying a, a Mizrach, you know, the decorative eastern wall, uh, 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 you know, uh, sign to remind people which direction to to, to daven, and this was the kind of um, Jewishy arts and crafts of the of the diaspora. Carp says to Pitzal Moshe, almost like a scene out of Dickens's Christmas Carol, where Scrooge calls down to the little boy, run off with this goose to, to Bob Cratchit's house, take this fish back to Henshireichel to my wife, and she'll know what to do with it. She'll know how to prepare it good and good and proper. Uh, and don't worry, she'll take care of you too when you get there. Of course, he leaves there hungry as well. So mm-hmm. while Pitzal Moshe is running off with the fish, who, by the way, who keeps thinking, is on the still way there. alive. He's the still fish, alive. The fish is still thoughts. kind of gasping. <laughs> you know, if you go to the to the Machane Yehuda market, you can see live fish, or yeah. they're on on ice. They they keep gasping for air it's, for a long time after taken out of the water. Um, but Salamoshe has never seen a fish, even though he's drawn them many times. He's yeah. never seen a fish because he's poor and he can't afford to eat fish. Um, even though he's drawn fish many times on the tombstones of of people who are either born or die in Chodesh Adar, Mazal Dagim. But he's done that by copying out the woodcut images that appear in old Sidurim. And he's fascinated by this fish. And the artistic impulse moves him. And maybe, he maybe takes we'll a, read that piece. He takes a piece of takes a piece of chalk and he starts sketching on on the fish itself because he has no paper so he has he has no way to So there's a passage this is chapter 9 in the story when an artist wants to draw a form he detaches his eyes from everything else in the world aside from what he wishes to draw immediately everything departs except that very form and since it regards itself as unique in the world it stretches and expands until it fills the entire world so was it with that fish 
when Betzal Moshe set his mind to drawing it, began to enlarge and expand and fill the entire world. Betzal Moshe saw this, and a chill seized him. His heart began to flutter, and his fingers trembled, as it is with artists who quiver with torments of the will and desire to recount the deeds of the Holy One, blessed be he, each in his own way, the writer with his pen and the painter with his brush. Paper, he had none. Now picture to yourself a world whose essence had been blotted out because a single form was floating in space and occupying all of existence, and there was not a piece of paper to draw on. In other words, what's that talking about, of course? I mean, it's, it's it, a... An essence that fills the whole world, but can't be contained on in the physical space of the paper, right? In other words, you don't need to be a great midrashist to understand there's another layer at work here, which certainly resonates with our parashiot of the Mishkan. There's the great infinite spirit, and if we can create the proper vessel in this world, we can... Asuli mikdash v'shechanti betocham. He will be able to dwell amongst us. Betzalamosha will be able to contain... This, of course, goes back to Plato's ideas of, of what art does. Right? When you draw something, you capture something of its essence. Right? When you create an aron, it captures something of the essence. It's not just the stone tablets that are therein. It's the shekhinah. At that moment, Betzalel Moshe felt similar to that mute cantor whose heart was stirred to sing a melody. He opened his mouth and moved his lips, and his cheeks crumpled and shattered from the torments. The mute cantor was given the inner sensation of a melody and denied its expression with his voice, whereas Betzalel Moshe was capable of drawing, but he was denied paper because, again, of his poverty. The, the social critique here, the social satire on wealth and poverty is something that runs throughout many of Agnon's stories and is important but not directly connected to our topic today. His eyes expanded like nets fish are caught in and like ornamental mirrors into which one gazes. The form of the fish came and settled there, taking on an extra portion of life, more than was in the fish while it was living. But Salamosha fumbled in his pockets again. He found no paper, but he did find a piece of black chalk. Feeling the chalk, he looked at the fish. The fish, too, looked at him. That is, its form rose up and gripped him. And he starts sketching with the chalk on the, on the face of the fish. But he's drawing, he's drawing the face of fishal carp on the fish. So the fish is having this weird transference. And in a moment, it will get tied up with fishal's own tefillin. His face will become to resemble fishal carp. He'll wearing be wearing fishal's tefillin. All the while, back in shul... Fischl takes out his tefillah shel yad, but he can't find his tefillin shel rosh. Why? Because it's back in the bag on its way to the pot. Well, you know the halacha says that between putting on the hand tefillin, the arm tefillin, and the head tefillin, you're not allowed to speak. So he's fumfering around looking for this, right? Long story short, he realizes what has happened, and as he runs back to Henshireichel to his wife, when she receives this package and opens it up, what does she see? Her husband transformed into a grotesque fish. After all, there's his face. There's his tefillin. She screams. The fish falls to the ground. Along comes fishal carp. Armed tefillin on, unable to speak. He sees his fish. He sees his tefillin. He says, oi, 
my tefillin. Oi, my fish. Tefillin having fallen to the ground, there's a custom. If your tefillin falls to the ground, to fast that day. So now he can't even eat his fish. And what happens? Boom. He's felled by a stroke. He's unable to speak. He's on the ground quivering just like a fish. Like a fish in Machana Yehuda. With the gills flapping and trying to suck the air. Agnon typically says, well, you know, I only tell the story exactly as it happened. Some say that was the end of Fischl Carp, but some say he recovered and he struggled on in life until Shabbos Rosh Chodesh Chanukah. You know, there's a custom, he tells us, that uh, every Shabbat we eat kugel. Well, you know, because Jews eat kugel. On Shabbos Rosh Chodesh, there's a custom to have two kugels because we take out two Sifrei Torah on Shabbat. Rosh Chodesh. But on Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, Hanukkah, we have to have three kugels because there are three Sifrei Torah. I don't know if Fischl was done in by the first kugel of Shabbos or whether he was done in between the second and the third kugel or if it was the third kugel that done it in, but certainly all three of them, he couldn't have survived. And that perhaps was the end of Fischl Karpo. When Fischl dies, they bury him. And Betzalel Moshe draws the design on the tombstone, which is, of course, the zodiac of Pisces, because Fischl was born in Adar and he died in Adar, just like, by the way, Moshe Rabbeinu. And uh, what's the zodiac of Adar? Well, one fish eating another fish. Yeah. Right? So Fischl eating the fish he never Fischl actually eating got the, to eat. eating the fish he didn't get to eat, but Fischl actually was done in, mm-hmm. was devoured, as it were, by his own fish. But then Agnon reminding us that he's telling this story of old and the challenge in this book of preserving the memories of his hometown, which has been completely destroyed in the Shoah. Well, it's kind of tricky. We put up a matseva. We put up a, a monument, a tombstone, so that there should be an eternal memory. But what happens? If you've ever visited these old cemeteries of Eastern Europe, I've been to the cemetery in Buchach, and what he describes is certainly true. The ground is stoff, and the stone is heavy, and over time, the stones settle in, you know, almost all the way. Some of them disappear entirely. So after a number of generations, Fischl's tombstone had sunk down. And the only thing that remained was Betzalel Moshe's design of the fish. And there were people in our town who said, in this grave, in fact, was buried the fish. Meaning the only thing that remains is not the object itself but the artistic encompassing, right? The only thing that remains is Betzal Moshe's drawing. That's the power of art, right? Art can contain, artistry can contain, a mishkan can contain that which otherwise cannot be, be captured. But, or preserved over time. Or preserved over time. But there's, Agnon's main register in humor was irony. And he depicts all of Betzal, all of Fischl Karp's mitzvot. So his talent in tefillin bag becomes this receptacle with which he goes shopping every day. As I said, it becomes like a shopping cart. All of his mitzvot are in the service of his stomach. 
there's a scene in which he's going out in the morning and he stops to kiss the mezuzah. Why? Well, it's the practice of a pious Jew. No, the night before, as he was coming home, he was eating a prune danish. And as he kissed the mezuzah on the way in, maybe there was something a little sticky on his fingers or on his lips that got left there. So if he kisses the mezuzah on the way out in the morning, oh, how sweet of the mitzvah, tatazise, right? You can still taste the sweetness of the mitzvah, meaning you can still taste the Danish he was eating the night, <laughs> the night before. Yeah. When, he's, when, he's, when he's eating a meal, he has dessert first. Why? Because maybe in the middle of the meal, the shofar shel Mashiach will sound. And everybody will have to run out to greet the Messiah. Then he wanted to get to have dessert. And he'll be, his, his joy at the Messiah will be diminished because he has to skip dessert. So it's, the, it's a parody. It's the exact opposite. He is someone who has taken all of the spiritual and turned it into an excuse for the material. In other words, the Mishkan is meant to be a physical encasement of the infinite and the spiritual and the divine. And official carp takes everything spiritual, every mitzvah, and turns it into something gashmi, into something, into something, into something uh, physical, into something edible. Uh, in the most, you know, edible being the most uh, obvious um, demonstration of the. Of the Gashmi, so Sagan's making this kind of parody. I think the fact that he does it here, B'tzal Moshe, the the whole exploration of the artistic impulse, which is something, by the way, that Agnon uh, treats throughout the entire canon. It was an idea that fascinated him as an artist, as a as a literary artist. It couldn't could not have fascinated him. Um, but what what is that art? And Agnon depicts the artist in a lot of different ways. the piece I might want to start closing with is this question of the, the tension between them. You know, if we have Fischl Karp, who obviously goes far too deep on the end of, of physicality, although he really intended, he aspired to be part of the spiritual world, but he, he got lost along the way. When we look at Betzalel Moshe in the story, he's well, he has that lasting impression of being able of making that gravestone and that being the the tombstone and that being what's left and what people actually see. But I think he also makes a statement there about the fact that if you are if you don't have, you know, he was a poor, hungry orphan. If you don't have family, if you don't have food, you know, he speaks about all this wonderful potential he has, but he doesn't have any he doesn't have any ability to learn. He doesn't have any tools or any sort of supplies that he needs to bring that into the world. And so it's, it's a, it's obviously a critique on both sides. You can be the most creative. And we like Batsal Moshe in the story. We, we feel for him deeply, right? He's, he's sort of this young boy and you, you sort of hope that he's going to find himself and find a way to support himself. But it's also a critique there of, you know, you can have a tremendous amount of spiritual potential, but if you don't have the encasement or the means to bring it into this world to a certain degree, that too will not be, it will not be fruitful. Yeah. There are two other relevant texts that may be a little more mainstream to the Matan podcast listeners. Uh, one, of course, is Rabbi Soloveitchik's Halachic Man, 
which describes that the halachic man's job is not to try to escape this veil of tears, this, this polluted physical world. That's the impulse of the homo religiosus, the religious character. Halachic man's job is to bring the divine down to earth. In that regard, the halachic man is in many ways closer to the figure of the cognitive man, the, the scientist. Right? Those are the beautiful passages that people know from the halachic man of young Yashaber being taken out into the synagogue courtyard by his father to see the sunset on the afternoon of Yom Kippur, to understand that this is no mere aesthetic experience that there's a halachic reality when the sun sets on this day. With the passing of Yom Kippur, it brings forgiveness and atonement. Right? That the physical universe itself is the manifestation of the halacha if we bring heaven down to earth. The other, of course, is from, well, not a rabbinic text, uh, but one that probably our, listeners, <laughs> probably our listeners are familiar with, and that's C.S. Lewis um, in his in his well-loved and well-known screw tape letters. In the first letter, which purports to be the intercepted dialogues between a master devil uh, screw tape and his protege, Wormwood, uh, trying to instruct the young protege devil on how to best tempt mankind. He addresses this topic. I will say it over on the outside. I will Judaize it, but you can look in the, uh, in the original, it goes something like this. The Rebbe devil says to the Talmud devil, look, I know you young folk think that your job is to sit on the shoulder of your charge of, of man and whisper into his ear all types of philosophical questions. Why the righteous suffer? Why the wicked prosper? How God could have allowed all those people to go up the smokestacks in Auschwitz, a million and a half of whom were children. You think this is what will lead them to sin, and this is what will lead them to apostasy, and this will lead them to, to, to stray. No, you don't have to work so hard. I once had a charge who I was tasked with tempting, and he was an avowed atheist, so my work was quite easy. And one day I saw him sitting, reading something, and a thought began to emerge in his head, a very dangerous thought. At his elbow immediately. I didn't have to start talking about righteous suffering. I didn't have to introduce all types of philosophical apicorsis. All I had to say to him was, right now would be a good time for a sandwich. (laughs) Usually that's enough to distract them. And it's true. It's true. In other words, you're, you, you're looking at your watch. You know it's five minutes to mincha. You better leave the house. But you say, I could really use a cup of coffee. And before you know it, boom, the mincha moment passed. has been lost. Uh, that challenge between the spiritual and the physical is very real. It's the subject of grand satire here, of, 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 you know, a parody, a carnival uh, in, in Agnon. It's the subject of profound theological speculation in Rabbi Soloveitchik, but it's something that we all live with and we all struggle with. The Mishkan is, is absent. We don't have it. We don't have the Mishkan. We don't have the Mikdash. Right? We have just the world that we live in. We A little bit is the Beit Knesset. Have, yeah, the, we, what we don't have is the physical housing. There is a Beit Knesset, okay? And I recognize right. that that also... Mikdash Ma'at. That 
has a different role in in the lives of people differently depending on the region you live in, right? It's, right. It means something different in the diaspora than what it means in right. Israel very often. Um, gender also plays a role, sure. But um, but what we what we don't have as much are the physical manifestations of our religious life, right. and so the struggle becomes the struggle is between physical things that take us away from spirituality. And 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 our quote unquote spiritual life, which right. could be whatever it is, connecting to the divine, learning, mm-hmm. um, different spiritual experiences, singing, but that that I think is the piece that when we look back at the parsha and we think about the mishkan, is you know or you know the classic what do we mourn for you know by Tisha B'av, is that we know that we need physical manifestations of things to help create a bridge between us and worlds that we can't see. And but what we're left with in this world is the lack of those kind of physical right. spaces that can sort of, you know, I, I I often think about what was what's the worst aspect for me about doing life on Zoom over the past mm-hmm. while is that I I need I'm very aware of my visceral need to change physical environments. Meaning, if I'm in my house and I'm working, it's hard for me to detach from my mothering and the laundry. Right and and sure. my other roles, but when you change environments, it in a way that is far greater than what the strength you can muster up yourself. It forces you into a new space, right. and so I feel like that's part of of what also is amiss is that the spiritual energy it just can it can just spread out yeah, and sure. you know dissipate. Yeah. This is it has to be anchored. We have to find anchors for it in the real world. That yeah. that may be what the Mishkan was designed to be, and mm-hmm. alas, we we do not have it. But uh, but that challenge, the tension, is is quite real yeah. uh, in our lives. Yeah, and obviously, even with a mishkan or a beit midrash, whatever sure. it will be, that tension obviously won't go anywhere. Right. Um, but there may be more of a. But it creates a model. That. It creates a kind of center of gravity that 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 reminds us that this is possible. That it's manifest. That that we we aim for it. We pray towards it. Mm-hmm. It's there as a as a compass in our yeah. mind. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Yosefa. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.